Thank you. Wow, what a tremendous job and what an awesome opportunity to get to be here with all of you. Steve and I felt like we were kind of coming home. <laughs> we drove in and went downtown, had late lunch at the fish market, and then drove through Gardendale, came up here to Morris. It just has been so sweet to get to see familiar faces and places. And this was a time in our life that we just grew so much spiritually during our 14 years at Gardendale. And it's hard to believe we've been in Memphis almost 18 years. This summer will be 18 years. That does not seem possible. It has gone by much faster. I don't know if it's time of life, you know, stage of life. They say that life is kind of like a roll of toilet paper. <laughs> the closer you get to the end, the faster it goes. <laughs> and that's kind of how I'm feeling. Like it's really speeding up. Like I can't believe how fast time is going. Um, but it really does feel that way. But it is an honor to be here. Of course, we love Zach and Kimberly and knew Zach before he even came to the Lord. So it's pretty amazing to have known him when he got saved in high school and to see what the Lord has done in his life and in Kyle's life and, and how he's using both of your families is just, wow, so incredible and so encouraging. Um, so we are going to be looking at John 15 tonight. So if you have your Bible, please open there. It happens to be one of my very favorite passages of Scripture. In fact, um, if anybody in Gardendale knew me very well during those years, I had grapevine everything for a while. It was a period of time. People gave me grapevine gifts because I was all about abiding in the vine and what that means. And it really is a picture of the Spirit-filled life. And it's, they're very important words because of the words that Jesus was telling his disciples just before he went to the cross. So we know it was the night that he experienced that last Passover with them. And he instituted the Lord's Supper. And he was telling them he was about to go to the cross. And so last words are so important. Those are the things you don't want the people you're telling them to to forget. Like these are the things you need to hold close, right? So that's what he's saying when he's giving them these words. Really from John 13 on through John 17 and the beautiful high priestly prayer of John 17. When he prays that we will be one with him just as he and the Father are one. Now, this picture of abiding is actually the illustration of the truth for which he was praying in John 17. Because if we are abiding in him, and he is the vine, and we are the branches coming out from him as our life source, then you have to be one with the vine, right? to be able to be a branch and to be able to bear fruit. So that was a beautiful picture that they would have been very familiar with. There would have been vineyards all over Israel as well as olive groves. And so that was a picture they truly understood. And they understood the pruning process so that the vines would bear more grapes. And that's what the Father does with us as well. So if you have your Bible, let's open to John 15 and look at verses 1 through 6. Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they're burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. 
My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Now, to abide, when you think about trying to define the word, it means to remain in, to be close, to rest, because we're trusting the life of the, of the vine to flow through us as a branch. So we don't have to create the life. We don't have to grit our teeth and bear fruit. It doesn't work like that, does it? No, we have to relax and surrender like we were just singing. Fully surrender, lay everything down so that his life that lives within us if we're saved is free to flow out. And he is the one who bears fruit in our lives. So Isaiah 26.3 is really a beautiful picture of what abiding is. It says, the steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. Listen to the New Living. You keep in perfect peace all who trust in you, all whose thoughts are fixed or stayed. You know what that literally means? It means that you are, you are stayed upon the Lord. You are laid down flat upon the Lord. You are prostrate. Have you ever gotten down on the ground when you're praying with your face into the carpet because you were just crying out to the Lord and you were really at the end of yourself and you were pleading with him? That's what the picture is. It is you are laid out on him, fully trusting him, knowing you can do nothing apart from him. That is literally what it means to abide. So we, as we just read, we realize Jesus is that vine his life flows through us. We're the branches that bear the fruit. And the Father is the gardener. He is the one who prunes us. And he prunes us and disciplines us so that we can bear more fruit. And pruning, I mean, it even sounds painful, doesn't it? <laughs> sometimes it is painful. God sometimes allows difficult things to come into our lives that we cannot fully understand because we don't have the big picture. We have tunnel vision. We see just our part of the branch and not even fully the vine. So we can't understand what the Father's doing in the grand scheme of things. So we are do, to do what? To abide in him and to trust that even if what we're going through is painful or difficult, we can trust him because the gardener is good. We know the Father if we're in Christ. And we know that he is good and he only does good. We know that from his word. We know it from the very beginning of creation. The only reason evil has come into the world is because of sin. It's rebellion. When Adam and Eve chose to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, all they gained was evil. They already had good. And it's the same for us. When we think we know better than God, when we think God needs our help, that we need to help him out, <laughs> he does not need your help. He desires your cooperation, but he does not need your help or my help. He wants us to abide in him so that we get in on what he's doing so that he is flowing through us freely. So we choose to trust him because we know that he's good and his word, as we immerse ourselves in his word, what did you say? You're already clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. His word is living and active and sharper than an two-edged sword. It pierces, it divides, it reveals. We are literally laid bare before the one with whom we have to do, the Bible tells us. We can't hide anything from him. He knows it all. And so as the good father, he comes in to prune and to take away those things that would hinder our growth, that would block the flow of his spirit, that would prevent us from bearing the fruit that he's desiring for us to bear. And then he says, you will bear much fruit. In verse 5, he says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. 
Our women's ministry studied the book of Galatians this past semester, and it was so good. It, it, it's really a treatise on how Jesus came to fulfill the law, and we're no longer under the law. The law was our tutor, our guide, to point us to the fact that we need a Savior. And Jesus Christ fulfilled the law, living the life we could not live, and took our place on the cross, paying our sin debt, bearing it, literally, our curse in his body on that tree, so that when he was died, buried, and God raised him from the dead, he not only paid our debt, but he conquered sin, death, hell, and the grave. And he came out with the keys. He came out victorious so that death no longer has a sting. For a believer, death is a doorway into the presence of the king. He has, we don't have to fear death anymore. And if we don't enter his presence through death, we'll see him in the rapture when the trumpet sounds. And you know that is the next thing to happen on the prophetic calendar, right? <laughs> Nothing else happen, has to happen prophetically before that trumpet sounds and Christ comes and we're caught up in the air with him. And then... A literal seven-year tribulation will be unveiled on this earth because his presence will be gone. And so as we think about Galatians and think about those people who are spiritual, so much of Paul's letters were an explanation of Christ's teaching. And so when he's saying you're going to bear much fruit, that means you have to be spiritual. You have to be mature. Now when you think about mature fruit, it's ripe, right? Ripe fruit tastes good. It's sweet. You desire to eat it. And you know what else? The branches, whether it's a fruit tree or a vine, they don't bear the fruit for them to consume. The fruit is born to be given away. The fruit is born always for others, right? And so we are to be mature, spiritual, which is exactly what the Bible says in Galatians. Listen to Galatians 6, 1 through 5. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual... Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. The law of Christ is love. For if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. But each one must examine his own work and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. For each will bear his own load. He's saying no comparing. But if we jump back up, so we're to be spiritual. And if someone's caught in a sin, what do we do? We condemn them, we cancel them, right? No. What did he say? Restore them, right? In a spirit of gentleness, we are to be like Christ. Christ pursues us. So if we are spiritual, we're bearing much fruit. That means we're bearing fruit to be given away, to bless, to nourish, to draw others to Christ. But we also go after them to restore them to the vine, to restore them to Christ. That's what he's called us to. So if we jump back up and we look at John Five, or Galatians 5, rather, 19 and following, listen to this. He's talking about the contrast between the deeds of the flesh and the deeds or the character of Christ, the fruit of the Spirit. He says, now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, the key word there is practice. If you're practicing it, you're making it a part of your life. It's what it, You practice something to get better at it, right? <laughs> so somebody who is practicing these things, they have made it a part of their life. It doesn't mean if you have fallen into a trap of the enemy in one of these areas. It means if it is your lifestyle. These people will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the contrast is... The fruit of the Spirit is love, 
joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. That's not what he's called us to. And in fact, he says in verse 13, you were called to freedom. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So what is he saying here about those who are spiritual? They're going to be bearing the fruit of the Spirit. They will not be practicing the deeds of the flesh. Why? Because they've crucified the flesh and now they come alive in Christ and Christ is living and flowing through us and we're living and living under the law one law the law of love we have been called to live under the law of love and only Christ can manifest the fruit of his spirit literally his character in our lives and his fruit leads to answered prayer to the proclamation of the gospel to the laying down of our lives that others might come to Christ. And it is our love for one another that proves we are his disciples. So if we're living under that law of love, we are walking with him, and he is going to be moving and flowing and producing fruit in our life. There should be evidence. Those around us should know that we're followers of Jesus Christ. I was telling Kimberly I had met a young woman for coffee yesterday. She's a 10th grader at a very large high school in Memphis. And she chose to go there in the ninth grade. She and her family prayed about it. She's the eldest of three, the very strong family in our church. And she really believed she wanted to go there to be a witness for Christ. So she went ninth grade, had a really hard time. Really only had one other Christian friend that she knew of in the school. This year, she has 11. She's really excited in a a high school that probably has over a 1,000 students. She has 11 believers, and they have a group chat. Well, she's been praying about it, and she just went to Peru over spring break and came back on fire and evangelistic, trying to share the gospel, started carrying her Bible to, to school, and had a girl come up to her and ask her about it. Like, what, you know, what is that you're carrying? She said, that's my Bible. And she was able to talk to her about Christ, and through that, she's met a couple of other Christians. So they all started talking and thought, oh, we're going to start a Bible study for seekers next fall. So the reason she reached out to me, and I thought was precious she got my phone number from her mother and reached out to me on text herself and asked if we could meet for coffee so that she could talk to me about which bible study she should do next fall can i just tell you that kind of fruit is incredible and a 10th grade girl doesn't bear that kind of fruit on her own she has fallen deeply in love with jesus she has been on mission for him and she went to, on a mission trip to peru she saw people come to christ and she came back saying i live in the midst of a mission field i'm going to school in the mission field lord you have placed me here how can you use me so now she's gotten gathered up her little group of christians and they're praying and asking the lord to help them start a bible study before school next fall on that campus that is bearing fruit only the Holy Spirit can do that. And if a 10th grade girl in a secular high school can do it, can we not as adults? Many of us have been walking with Jesus for many, many years, surrender fully and say, Lord, how can you use me? How do you want to bear the fruit in my life and who are you bearing the fruit for? Who am I to be sharing Jesus with? Who am I to be sharing the things that you have given me to steward? Lord, you show me. I want us to kind of zoom in on 7 and 8 because these verses really came to life a few years ago as I was studying them and kind of doing a deep dive into just these two verses. 
And I suddenly saw that there's an acrostic for abide in these two verses. And so the A we're going to look at um, in abide is abandon. The very first thing we have to do to be able to abide in Christ is to abandon ourselves to him. What's the first phrase? If you abide in me. That's the prerequisite. If he is going to be free to flow through us and we are going to be those who bear his fruit, the fruit of his character, we have to abide in him. That means I have to die to Donna, deny myself, take up my cross daily, and follow Jesus. That's how I abide in him. I am in Christ, and so I want to be dead to my flesh and to anything that would hinder the flowing of his Holy Spirit through my life. So I'm going to die that I might come alive to him, and that means I need to love him with all of my being. Heart, soul, mind, and strength. In fact, when your love for Christ surpasses your love for self, sin loses its hold. Do you hear that? When your love for Christ surpasses your love for self, sin loses its hold. And you will find as you fall more deeply in love with him, and you're no longer on the throne of your life, you're less self-protective and less self-aware. You truly start living every day for his namesake and for his glory. And you can rest in that. There's incredible peace in abandoning yourself fully and completely to Christ. And then you will find that the sin that so easily entangled you before will no longer entangle you. In fact, it won't even entice you. Because you have grown so in your love for Jesus that truly, when you look at him, everything else grows strangely dim in light of his glory and grace. So I want to encourage you, whatever you're holding on to, it's only keeping you from experiencing the fullness of his grace, his love, the fruit that he's going to bear through you, and he is good, you can trust him. We all have a hard time trusting. We have a hard time letting go and really believing that God is good. But when we get right down to it, we do understand, right, we literally have control over nothing. Sometimes we think we're trying to control things or people or situations, but we don't even control our next breath, much less anything else. We get in the way. We can be a hindrance to God moving and doing what he's desiring to do but when we abandon ourselves and we get in on what he's doing, then we get to be a part of what only he can do. Because we just read, apart from him, we can do what? Nothing. Nothing. So we have to abide if we're going to be able to experience him. Dallas Willard, in his book, The Divine Conspiracy, said, The struggle in the Garden of Gethsemane was a matter of Jesus' mind and feelings being hammered in every possible way to make him mistrust the Father. He almost died of it on the spot. But Jesus added to his friends, In me, this ruler has not the least thing on his side. John 14, 30. It was finally what was not in Jesus that made him invincible, that kept him safe. This is the true situation. Nothing has power to tempt me or move me to wrong action that I have not given power by what I permit to be in me. And the most spiritually dangerous things in me are the little habits of thought, feeling, and action that I regard as normal because everyone is like that and it's only human. That's from the divine conspiracy. Now, think with me. Jesus is able to say 
the enemy had nothing in him because he'd never sinned. Do you remember what he said to Peter? Peter, Satan has demanded permission to sift you. He would not have been able to demand permission if there was not something that needed to be sifted in Peter, right? Peter had sin in his life. We know for one, pride. Lord, I'll go with you to death. And what did Jesus say? No, you won't. In fact, you're going to deny that you even know me three different times before the rooster crows. And we know that he did. But we also know the tender way the Lord restored him and how he met him and fed him and commissioned him to feed his lambs. And after Peter came to the end of himself and a abandoned himself he was able to stand up on the day of Pentecost and be the one who was chosen to preach and see 3,000 people come to Christ in one day that's what God will do if we will abandon ourselves to him so if you abide in me that's abandon and my words abide in you that's believe we've got to believe his word and I want to tell you something if you will believe you will see but if you don't believe, you will not see. <laughs> if you want to just be locked into the natural, do it on your own. But if you want to see what only God sees and be a part of what only God can do, you've got to believe. You've got to take him at his word. Think about the 12 spies. The Israelites sent the 12 spies, one from each tribe, into the promised land. And 10 of them went in not believing. And what did they see? They saw there were big cities, there were fortified walls, there were giants in the land. And what did they believe because of what they saw? We can't take the land. There's no way we can capture these fortified cities and the people are huge. We can't do this. And what took over? Fear gripped their hearts. And what did they say? Our children will die. We can't go in there. But Joshua and Caleb went with them. But they came back with a totally different perspective. Why did they have such a different perspective? Because they went in believing, and so consequently they saw what those who were locked in the natural because of fear could not see. They saw the fear of God coming upon the people, and they said, it's evident God is giving us the land. It is a land flowing with milk and honey. We need to go in and take the land, but what do we know happened? Fear is extremely contagious, and it spread through the people. And what did God say to them? What you said about your children it's not going to happen to your children. It's going to happen to you. You're going to die, but it's going to be in the wilderness. In fact, none of you are going to be able to enter the promised land. Those children you were so worried about, they're going to go in and take the promised land at the end of 40 years when all of you have died in the wilderness. There are consequences to unbelief. And in fact, if you read the book of Hebrews, when it's talking about the Israelites, they were not allowed to go into the promised land. And what, did they, what does the writer of Hebrews call the promised land? The rest of God. They were not allowed to enter his rest because of what? Unbelief. So if you abandon yourself to him and you believe, you take him at his word, you know what? You get to rest. You get to enter into the abundant life and the rest that comes when you've surrendered yourself fully and completely to him, knowing it's not dependent upon you. He is the one who is able and he will do it. If you believe, you will see. And then the I intercede what's the very next word if you abide in me and my word abides in you ask 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 what's on your heart 
What does Philippians 4, 6, and 7 say? Be anxious for nothing. That means nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And then the peace of God, which passes all comprehension, will come in and guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. So what are we to do? We turn it into prayer. We ask. We ask the Lord. We tell him whatever is on our heart. And we do it with thanksgiving. Why thanksgiving? Because we're saying, God, I trust you. I trust you to answer this according to your perfect will, and I'm going to trust that however you answer, it's going to be for my good and ultimately for your glory. So when I surrender, I abandon, and I believe, and I'm going to ask. So I'm going to lift my prayers up to the Lord. Prayer is to your spiritual life what breathing is to your physical life. You know, there are two realms of existence, and the Bible is very clear about it. There's the physical realm. And there's the spiritual realm. And when you get saved, those two realms intersect. And the longer you walk with Christ, the more in tune and aware of the spirit realm you become. And you're less tangled up with and enticed by the things of this world because now you have a kingdom perspective and you're living as a citizen of heaven knowing that you want to lay up treasure in heaven and so part of the treasure you're sending before you is to pray how do we know it's treasure because what does God do with our prayers Revelation 5 8 tells us he gathers them all up and they're held in golden bowls before his throne and they continually rise before him like incense your prayers can outlive you. They're tangible in heaven right now, and every one of them matters. And not only do they matter, but when you pray, do you know who else starts praying? The Holy Spirit. He jumps in and he starts interceding for us with groanings too deep for words. He knows our heart. He knows the will of God. And he starts praying for us. Whoever lives to pray for us, Jesus. Every time you pray, Jesus is praying for you. And when you pray, you're entering into the very throne room of heaven described for us in Revelation 4 and 5 where the angels are crying out, holy, holy, holy. Why do we know that? Because the veil has been torn and we have been invited in. And Hebrews 4.16 says, come confidently, boldly, with freedom of speech into his presence to receive grace and mercy to help in time of need. So ask. Spend time in his word. Spend time asking. And then delight. Whatever you wish. Because if you have abandoned yourself to him, you're believing his word and you are asking, you know what? You're going to be lining up with his word, with his truth. And you're going to be asking according to his will. And you're going to be able to then lift up to him whatever it is that you delight. In fact, that's what Proverbs talks about when it says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. To delight yourself, that literally means to make yourself soft and pliable so that he molds you into his likeness so that then your desires are his delight. And your delight becomes his desires because you're being conformed to his image and you're in on what he's doing. So ask whatever you wish. And then expect. The E is expect. What does it say? And it will be done for you. It will be done for you. What does Hebrews 11, 1 and 6 tell us about faith? It says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The things that we know in the spirit realm. And how do we come to him? We know without faith it's impossible to please him. That those who come to God must do two things. They must believe that he is, he's who he says he is, and that he's good. Because what does it say? That he's a rewarder of those who seek him. We must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder. It's who he is. 
So we can expect him to answer. And we know that it's going to be good. So we're going to abandon ourselves to him. We're going to believe. We're going to ask. We're going to delight in him. And we're going to expect that God is going to move on our behalf. And he will do it. Prayer is your lifeline. As you get into the Word of God, and, and Kimberly's talking about us giving them one-year Bibles. We've been reading one-year Bible forever. And then when I moved to Gardendale and I started doing the chronological Bible, you're still reading through the Bible. However you choose to do it, there are so many Bible plans today. But it literally only takes about 15 minutes a day to read through the Bible in a year. So if you want to be cleansed by the Word, as Jesus said, that He has spoken, and abide in Him and really believe His Word, to believe it, you've got to know it, right? So we need to immerse ourselves in the Word of God and know the Word of God so that we can live out the Word of God and we, we can recognize the lie of the enemy when we are immersing ourselves in his truth. You have 96 15-minute segments in every single day. So do not tell me that you cannot give God 196th of your day to read through his Word in a year. <laughs> However you choose to do it, just have a system to read through his word. And it is amazing how it doesn't matter where you are or what's going on in your life. You can open to Leviticus and God will have a word for you. And you just are amazed by it. And in fact, do you realize we would be living under the laws of Leviticus if it were not for the cross of Jesus Christ? So you can celebrate every time you read the book of Leviticus that we're no longer under that law, that sacrificial system. In fact, we need to be praying for our families, praying for our churches, praying for the cities where God has chosen to place us. If we will pray, God will move. I have a nephew that I prayed for for years, and it's my middle sister's oldest son, Garrett. And when he was 13, he was kind of struggling. And anyway, they did a kind of a rite of passage at our house that year. It was the year we did the Easter service at the BJCC, and all of my family was in town, and we all came over. It was Garrett's 13th birthday, and so all the men went over, and they prayed over him, and they read scripture over him, and just kind of gave him a challenge. But I had been praying for him, and I wrote it down, and the Lord said one morning in my quiet time, that Garrett was a man of honor and integrity, a warrior of the Most High. This was in high school when he was struggling with following the Lord. And I mean, the moment the Lord, I mean, like, it was that clear. Like, you know, I did not hear it audibly, but it's when the Holy Spirit impresses words upon your heart and mind, and you know that you know it's the Holy Spirit. And it was, he is a man of honor and integrity, a warrior of the Most High. I wrote it in my prayer journal, and I got up and called my sister. I said, Lisa, listen to who God says Garrett is. And so we began to pray that. I shared it with the family. We began to pray it. He got, he went to college, senior year, he did great. He went to college, and I told him he became enamored with his brain because he's very intelligent. And he decided all the things that he had been taught when he was growing up were not, probably not true, and he was going to get out in the world and just see how he could figure things out. So he graduated early. He got a really great job at a company, and he was working his way up the ladder because he went early and left late, and he walked around and schmoozed people. I mean, he just, he knew how to do it. He just knew how to work the system. And so he was already getting raises. He was making money, but he was frustrated and empty because he wasn't finding what he was looking for. So he got into a discipleship group. Well, the guys in the discipleship group weren't really living for the Lord. And so one day he was just frustrated. And I stayed connected with him. I would text him or every once in a while I would email him something. In fact, when I was writing one of my books, I'd send him, a, you know, I don't know, like a page or two. And I said, okay, I want you to read this and tell me what you think about it. And he would give me honest feedback. And so one day I asked him about his discipleship group and he was just so frustrated. And he said, I don't know anybody that's really living for Jesus. I said, then be that man. Be that man. If you will be that man and if you will trust Christ, God will bring other young men like that to you. But I don't believe he's going to do it until you decide to go all in, until you decide to really live for Jesus. Well, about that time, he had been kind of toying with doing something different. He tells us all he's going to go to graduate school in a secular university to get a Ph.D. in philosophy. 
Well, I mean, as a believer, you think, okay, secular university, a PhD in philosophy, this is probably not a good plan. <laughs> and so we're all praying like crazy, and he gets accepted, gets a full ride, plus a graduate assistantship in the University of South Florida in Tampa. So we're praying for him like crazy, get down there. And one of his major professors is a strong believer and actually taught Archeolo biblical archaeology in the summer for Southern Seminary. So, you know, God took care of that. Then he met this beautiful young woman in orientation, and her name was Ashley. And Ashley had gotten radically saved during her master's program out in Colorado and had come down there to do a PhD in philosophy as well. Well, they both noticed each other, and so then they start dating. But you know what Ashley said to Garrett? Unless you can be a spiritual leader, we're not going to be able to continue dating. <laughs> So Steve was speaking, uh, preaching at a church in Tampa, and I went down with him, and we took Garrett and Ashley out to dinner one night, and we're sitting there literally for two hours talking theology, talking Bible. She's asking questions. She's just so hungry. She didn't grow up in the church. She doesn't have a saved family. Her parents divorced. You know, she literally had nothing to draw from. Garrett was raised in Christian, uh, Christian school to the eighth grade. I mean, he was great family, awesome church, discipled. He's got it all, and yet she's the one that's hungry. She's the one that cannot get enough. And it was so fun to watch him come to life, seeing her excitement. And so at some point, Garrett got up and went back to the bathroom. And I literally almost crawled over the table. It's like, I love you. You are such an answer to prayer. It's like, oh, my goodness. How could the Lord be so good to drop you down here? This is just amazing. Well, they are married now, and they have a little boy. But um, they were not even engaged at this point. And so she said, I would love to be able to come here. You teach sometime. And I said, Believe it or not, I'm actually going to be back in two weeks at First Baptist Naples. I'm going to fly down, pull the phone out, okay, how far are we from Naples? It's like an hour and a half, two hours. And she said, could I drive down and go to the conference? I said, absolutely. You can stay in my hotel room. And Garrett's like, you don't even know each other. And you're not our state. I said, oh, girls do this all the time. It's really no big deal. <laughs> That is not a problem at all. And so because I know she's an avid reader and I literally, I checked a bag and then I, my carry-on was all books for her, all books. And some were on prayer. I took her prayer portions. I took her some of the great classics. And she sat there literally and just opened it. It was like, oh, this is so amazing. And she read the Bible through that next year for the very first time. The conference was in November, and I gave her a one-year chronological Bible. And she and I would have telephone conversations so she could ask me questions because she had been fearful. She had only read the New Testament, and she loved Jesus. But she was a little afraid of the God of the Old Testament and all the wars and the bloodshed. And I said, let's do it together. Let's read it together. And what you're going to find is everything in the Old Testament points to Jesus. Every single thing. In the Old Testament is a picture, the tabernacle. Everything God did was a beautiful promise and a foreshadowing of what he was going to fulfill in Jesus Christ. And you're going to see that Jesus is on every page of the Old Testament. And it was incredible to be able to experience that with her. I tell you that to say don't ever give up praying for your loved ones. Go after them. Pray for them. Recruit other people to pray for them. Pray over your city. Kimberly mentioned a rise to read, and I was praying over the city. I'd been going into the city and tutoring some children, refugee and inner city children, every Tuesday afternoon at a little faith-based Christian school there. And kids were just, they were just doing so well. They were responding to the one-on-one -on -one attention and tutoring. And so I was praying over the city, and that was the morning God called me to arise to read. And what I sensed once again, impressed upon my heart, was this is your city. These are your children. 
What are you doing about it? And I was kneeling before this chair that has an ottomus where I usually sit and read my Bible and pray. And I had my prayer notebook open and I was kneeling in front of it. And I literally rocked back on my heels and said out loud, Lord, I don't know. It feels really overwhelming. I don't even know where to start. Memphis has the highest child poverty rate in the nation. That's crazy. 39 to 40% of our children are currently living in poverty. If I'm supposed to love my neighbor like I love myself, I should not be able to sleep at night to think that those children are going to bed hungry or that they're getting a subpar education. I'll tell you what, I wouldn't be able to sleep if it was my grandchild. I can tell you that. I mean, those of you that, since I left Gardendale, have had grandbabies, we're in the same club. I was just talking about how it's all the love without the responsibility. It is wonderful. <laughs> you just get to love them and spoil them and send them home. It's awesome. It is so much fun. But I know how much I love them and what I would do for them if I thought in any way they were endangered or they weren't getting a good education or they didn't have the things that they needed. And so as I was praying over the city, it was like, Lord, how can I do anything less for the children of my city? But I don't know. It seems so big. Where do I start? And it was like immediately get churches to adopt inner city schools and focus. I'm an educator in background. Focus on literacy and the gospel. So we put Bible clubs on the campuses of the schools that we get adopted. And now we have businesses adopting schools because obviously we can't share the gospel during the day when we're tutoring the children one-on-one. But we can do Bible clubs in the afternoon. And we also get get to know one of the neighborhoods, churches, so that if we have a family in need, we have a church, a pastor to call to connect them with. And it's just been amazing how God has, has utilized that all these years. It's been amazing. We became a nonprofit in 2015 because once we went into schools and did it, and the kids were, they average, we used the Frost Sight Word List, which is a 1,000-word list, basically 100 words per grade. The first 300 comprise about 67% of the most common words that the kids see on an average day in school. So these are the words they, they see all the time. And so they need to know those with automaticity. That was my new word when we started doing this. <laughs> so they, it just comes like this. So they're not having to struggle with the word and they can focus on comprehending the passage. Well, the children are averaging a three grade level sight word increase every year. We just finished this past year and we were just, just, we're just getting our post-testing in and we actually pre-tested and post-tested all the second graders that the schools were in. We're in 36 schools in Shelby County this year and um, the, the interesting thing in that is we're going to have the data to show how the children we worked with progressed against the ones we didn't work with so we're going to be able to see the difference. But we, when we pre-tested them, 14% of the children were reading on sight word grade level at the beginning of the year. When we post-tested, 74% of them were reading on sight for a grade level. <laughs> Only the Lord can do that. But God has opened the door through the Bible clubs for us to get the gospel. Because Kimberly and I were talking, because I know that y'all have started something similar to it here, is our goal is we want the children to be able to read so they can one day own a Bible and read. And all the children in the Bible clubs get a Bible. And they learn Bible stories. They memorize scripture. They sing songs. They get a snack. They play games. It, it's an awesome, awesome Bible club. And just this past Sunday, y'all, a precious little Hispanic fourth grader who got saved at one of our Bible clubs asked his mom if they could start coming to Bellevue, and Steve baptized him Sunday morning. I know, just, oh, I got, got chills right now just thinking about it. But ladies, I, I say that to you to say, when Steve and I first got married and I was a pastor's wife, 
I literally felt like I didn't qualify to be a pastor's wife because I don't sing like any of these ladies up here. I don't play the piano. I felt like I, you know, I didn't qualify. And I struggled to speak in front of adults. All of a sudden, I became fearful. And what, after having a sweet, godly woman pray over me and having to face my fear and recognize that faith and fear cannot coexist in the human heart, one's going to force out the other. So either I fully abandon myself to Jesus and abide in him and trust him. And if I do... His spirit forces out the fear. He fights for me. And I can trust him because he's good. And he set me free from that fear. And then I realized when I got on the other side of it that it was obviously pride. It was just so ugly. And it's, honestly, it's embarrassing to even have to say it was pride because I was obviously more concerned with what people thought than what he thought. A little backwards, is it not? <laughs> so when I flipped that around and actually got it right to where I feared and revered him, then I fear no man. If I've died in my flesh, I'm alive to Christ. And I'm not living for this world anyway. So I don't have to have accolades in this world. I want my treasure in heaven. I want to live every day for that day. For the day I stand before him. And I fully believe when we stand before the one whose eyes shoot flames of fire, <laughs> that it's going to be like, whoosh, when you stand before him. And everything that was temporal that you've invested in, that's of this world, 1 Corinthians 3 tells us, is going to go up in smoke like hay wooden stubble. But the things we've invested in that are eternal will come out as gold, silver, and precious stone for us to lay at the feet of our Savior. And I just want to encourage you. This world is so busy. It's so loud. You can't abide if you don't pull away and spend time with him. So you need to fight for your time with the Lord. Because the enemy and the world will fight you for it. So you're going to have to be willing to stand firm and to set aside time and to have a plan to read through God's word. Amy Carmichael, the famous missionary to India that I love so much, said it's the most important appointment of our day. She said you wouldn't think about going to a doctor's appointment or a lawyer's appointment late or unprepared. Why would we not be even more determined to meet with the king of the universe? on time and prepared. So have a prepared place and time that you meet with him. And that place and that time will become sacred. And if you will just take that 15 minutes to read through the word of God every day, and then another 96th of your day to respond to what you've read in prayer and to lift your loved ones up, your church, your pastor and staff, their families, your community, the nations that are lost, dying apart from Christ, you're going to find that 30 minutes is not going to be long enough. And there may have been a time in your life where you thought, gosh, I've prayed around the entire world and only five minutes have gone by. <laughs> you're going to find now my notebook. In fact, Diane Raglan sitting right out there. She's the one that got me doing a notebook. My notebook's about this thick now, Diane. And it's my second or third one because um, I will take some pages out because it just gets too full. But I, I put in a date prayer request, and then I date um, when God answers. And boy, that's a faith booster. Listen to John 15, 7 and 8. 
If you abide in me and my word abides in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Now listen to this. By this is my Father glorified. Now wait a minute. By what? What did he just say? By this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. By this, by answered prayer. That's what he just said. If you abide in me and my word abides in you, ask whatever you wish, it will be done for you. By this, by answered prayer is my Father glorified and you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. If you're not praying, you're not getting answers. So you're not bearing fruit. And you're not going to be able to glorify Jesus in the way that he desires for you to glorify him as he bears fruit in you and through you. Why does the enemy fight you at prayer? Because he knows that's where he loses. He knows that's where he's defeated. He knows that's where you line up with the truth of God's word and you begin to believe so that you can see. And you will go out into your world and into your day just like Joshua and Caleb. God, you are giving me this day. You are victorious, and I am walking in the power and the anointing of my God. And Lord, I want to be in on what you're doing today. Give me eyes to see. Give me ears to hear what your spirit is saying so that I can get in on what you're doing. He has so much more than what we can think up. He has so much more than what we can accomplish because he is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we could begin to ask or imagine. And you know how he does it? According to his power, his spirit that dwells within us. So I want to encourage you, choose today to have a time in his word and in prayer. Don't let anything keep you from him. And as you ask, start asking big. He's a big God. Ask him to use you. Let him push you out of your comfort zone and expand your borders and see what he will do. You know, there may be some of you in here tonight that don't know the Lord. Maybe somebody invited you to come and you're listening to this and thinking, wow, I don't know anything about answered prayer or even really kind of what you're talking about. Maybe you've heard the gospel before or maybe you're even a church member. And you realize, you know what, I've got a lot of head knowledge, but I don't know that I ever have surrendered and made Jesus Lord of my life. He's not your Savior unless he's your Lord. When we come to him, we have to come and confess. You are my Lord. When I come, it's a life exchange. I'm giving my life for his life. And we have to recognize that we're sinners. I mean... My goodness, this Bible is the story of reality. It lines up with reality. If you just step back and look at the world and the brokenness in the world, if you ask anybody, law saved, atheist, doesn't matter, do you think the world is broken? Yes, we all know it's broken. Nobody knows what to do about it. We know. We have the answer. And not only does the Bible predict, not only does the Bible explain sin, it predicts it. It tells us What's going to happen? Why these bad things are happening? Because we're not obeying the word of God. It's because we're worshiping the creature instead of the creator. That's why there's so much brokenness and pain and separation and confusion in our world today. And if that's you, if you feel confused and pulled and you don't feel like you really know the truth because you don't really know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I would love to be able to lead you in a prayer of commitment to him. And 
In fact, let me just ask you to bow your heads, if you would. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you are here in this place, Lord. Your presence is here. And Father, I don't want any woman to leave here tonight not knowing that she belongs to you, that she's in right relationship with you. So if that's you tonight, if the Holy Spirit is tugging at your heart and God is speaking to you through, your, through his Holy Spirit, just like he spoke to me when I was praying, and you know that you know he's speaking to you, just confess to him right now in your heart that you know you're a sinner. You know you're lost. You're separated from him. Tell him that you believe. You believe he's who the Bible says he is. That he did live a sin-free life so that he could bear your sin and my sin, our punishment, because the the wages, the paycheck of sin is death, the Bible tells us. He bore our death in his body on that cross. And he was buried, but God raised him on the third day. And he conquered death, hell, and the grave. Tell him that you believe that. And then ask him to save you. And receive him into your life as your Lord and as your master. It's a heart exchange and a life exchange. You're giving your life to him because he has given his life for you and now he gives it to you. And just tell him thank you. Thank you. Thank you for saving me. And you may be a believer here tonight and you've just allowed yourself to be like Martha. You've been busy and distracted by so many things that you're failing to sit at the feet of Jesus and choose the best part, the one thing that will never be taken away from you. Would you just ask the Lord to strengthen you in your inner man and to enable you to choose the best part, to choose him, to choose his word, to choose to sit and listen and to commune with him, and then to commune with him as you go through your day? Abandon yourself to him that you might abide in him. Remember that picture, it's laid out flat on him. And it's only then that we know his perfect peace and rest. It should be evident to those around us that we're at peace because we have his peace. Not the peace of the world, just as Jesus said, but his peace he has given us. Father, we thank you, we bless you. And Lord, I know that your spirit has spoken to each one of us individually tonight. So Lord, take the power of your word, pierce our hearts, Reveal to us anything in us that is not pleasing to you, that is quenching the flow of your spirit in our lives, that's preventing us from bearing the fruit that you desire us to bear for others, that others might come to Christ. Lord, let your kingdom come and your perfect will be done tonight in every single one of our lives. And ladies, there will be women up here that will pray with you. If you just have a prayer request, Maybe you have someone that's a burden on your heart and you want to come pray. Maybe you prayed tonight and you've committed your life to Jesus. I wish you would come and tell someone. We're going to worship in response to what the Lord has spoken to our hearts tonight.